and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event at the LSE. My name is Danielle Sands and I'm a fellow at the Forum. I'm going to be chairing this evening's event on the human paradox. In this event, we are celebrating the work of Forum founder and Emeritus President Alan Montefiore, marking the publication of his most recent book, Philosophy and the Human Paradox, Essays on Reason, Truth and Identity. In a career spanning over 70 years, Montefiore's thinking has addressed issues including identity, reason, values and responsibility. His work is resolutely non-dogmatic and accessible, and his insistence that philosophy is a lived and living practice that entails getting one's feet wet continues to inform the work of the Forum. Let me introduce you to our speakers. Fiona Hughes is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Essex, and Adrian Moore is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Oxford. So, Fiona, Adrian, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your background with Alan. When did you meet him and how did you first get introduced to his work? So I arrived in Oxford from Edinburgh, but indirectly um, from Tübingen, and um, was a bit mystified by this institution, which I was very excited about joining, but didn't understand and pretty quickly realised just how much I didn't understand it. So I started going to various lectures, and those included lectures by Alan on Kant. And I was already working on Kant, so this was a great fit as far as I was concerned. And there was a real buzz about the lectures. There was an excitement, students talking to each other before, not so much during and after. And it felt like where you wanted to be. And from then on, I suppose I started talking to Alan. He wasn't supervising me, but he nevertheless was enormously supportive of me at that stage and throughout my developing career. And I got involved in his Kant discussion groups in Balliol and there met lots of other really interesting people. And I suppose I really felt like I'd met a kindred spirit in Alan (laughs) in the sense that he was so intent on not getting stuck in divides in competitions between different sorts of philosophy. And I found that really encouraging and made me feel that I could do philosophy within this environment. A very, very similar story, actually, very similar. I too arrived in Oxford, a little unsure what I was about to be subjected to. And I too attended lectures that Alan gave during my first year in Oxford and was greatly struck by them, greatly influenced by them. I was a graduate student at the same college that Alan himself was at. I was at Balliol. So Alan was my college advisor, which meant that he wasn't actually supervising me, but did have some contact with me. And he was somebody that I could turn to if I had any problems of of any kind, whether academic or non-academic. And right from a very early stage, he was very supportive. Just like Fiona, what particularly struck me was attending those lectures. And in fact, in preparation for this evening, I fished out my my lecture notes from that very first course of his that I attended. This is over 40 years ago, and it was a lecture course that was entitled The Self and the Subject. There were themes there that have 
preoccupied Alan, obviously, for the whole of his career, because they surface again in this new volume of essays. And it was really fascinating for me to look back at those notes and to look at the way in which he had been introducing those issues all that time ago, and seeing some things that had remained constant, but other things that have clearly developed over the years. I mean, I think he was saying things at the time that he probably wouldn't any longer say or wouldn't say in quite the same way. But Danielle, when you were introducing this event right at the beginning, you talked about the non-dogmatic nature of Alan's philosophy and the accessibility of it. And Fiona, you you talked about the way in which he's always been, or sorry, has always failed to be imprisoned by the various divides that, that so many of the rest of the philosophical community is constrained by. And all of these things were just there at a very early stage. I mean, there was a real accessibility about the lectures, there was a liveliness about them, but there was a serious open-mindedness about them as well. And one of the things that he did for me was encourage me to really take seriously something that I'd been suspicious of for a little while as an undergraduate, namely the idea that there isn't a sharp divide between what gets called analytic philosophy and what gets called continental philosophy, that they need not be in opposition to each other. I'd been very much trained as an analytic philosopher. That was the kind of philosophy that I'd been subjected to as an undergraduate. And here was somebody who was thoroughly immersed in analytic philosophy, uh, who was nevertheless lecturing on figures that typically count as part of the continental tradition, if we're going to use those labels, and was lecturing on them in such a way that they were in dialogue with analytic philosophers and was making their work lively and accessible and interesting to me. That's been an influence ever since. So perhaps for the benefit of those who may not have read Alan's work, I'm going to ask you a a big question. How does he understand philosophy? And why does it entail, I use this, this phrase earlier, why does it entail getting one's feet wet? I really like that phrase. And I was really pleased to see that, Danielle, in your introduction to the volume, that you brought that out. And I love the longer passage about walking across a bog And it's such a good visual and indeed tactile image of the way Alan sees philosophy. So you're looking for places to stand, but you know that anywhere that you stand will to some extent give way and you're going to have to move on and you're going to have to work on keeping your balance. And that's a metaphorical way of expressing Alan's approach to philosophy, which is that we can never simply rely on positions as if they're ready-made, that we always have to re-examine them and that we have to interconnect. That's the sort of the importance of moving from one place to another. But at the same time, he insists that this doesn't mean that we shouldn't have confidence in what we have to say, that we should have confidence, but that confidence comes from the ability to see where we are make moves that make sense within the conditions that we are arguing and that make sense to others so that we can open up our discourse and that it's not something which is a strictly technical undertaking, even though technicality will come into the story as well, but it's not an end in itself. 
It's a really striking image, isn't it? I mean, like you, Fiona, I was really pleased that Danielle fastened on that in the way that she did, because it, it's such a striking image and it's, it's such a suggestive one and it connects with so many other things in, in Alan's work. I mean, at one point he develops the image by saying, you know, we might have little tufts of grass that we can move about <laughs> to save us from sinking into the marsh and getting our feet wet and for a while that can work but eventually you have to sort of stand still and reflect on where you've got and once you're standing still then you're going to find that you start sinking again and that image of moving around little tufts of grass I think is connected with something that he's discussing at that point in that paper, which is the project of trying to define our terms clearly, you know, trying to pin down our concepts and um, trying to explain definitively what it is that we're engaged with at any given point. And the suggestion is to a limited extent that you, you can do that. And that's part of what you're doing when you're moving tufts of grass around but that can never be what completely supports you and once you're actually working with your concepts again and putting them to real philosophical use it's going to start getting messy and that I think is one of the recurring themes that you find in Alan's work. Another thing that I see in Alan's work I I don't know whether you see this as well Fiona in fact I think he's explicit about this is that philosophy is to a large extent the human condition. I mean, we're all philosophers. It's not an enterprise that's reserved for just a small subgroup of humanity. Everybody, to some extent, philosophizes. We're all conscious that there are these big questions pressing in on us. We're all keen to try to address those questions. We're all interested in trying to make sense of the position that we find ourselves in on on a grand scale. But we're also all, in one way or another, conscious of our particularity and the contingency of our situation. And I think For Alan, a large part of the philosophical enterprise, whether it's pursued by professional philosophers or by people that don't call themselves philosophers at all, but a large part of the enterprise is trying to reconcile these two aspirations, the aspiration on the one hand to arrive at big answers to big questions, and the aspiration on the other hand to make sense of our very particular, very contingent circumstances. And in Alan's own case, I mean, I I think one of the prime examples in his own case and something that he returns to quite a lot in his writing is his attempts to understand his own uh, Judaism, the, the Jewish heritage that was obviously a very important part of his upbringing which again is to some extent a contingency about the circumstances in which he personally finds himself, but which also obviously connects with some of the the big questions in religion that confront us all. I think for Alan, trying to make sense in particular of his Judaism is a very graphic illustration of this tension that I've been talking about, the tension between trying to answer the big questions and trying to understand the particular. That movement between the particular and what can be called the universal, it's an ongoing negotiation in the way Alan approaches philosophy. And as you say, the personal comes in there, 
not as something to be swept under the carpet, to be ashamed of when one is being professional and rigorous, but rather something to be dealt with, but, but not dealt with as something that determines who we are. But certainly the personal is there as, as shaping who we are. I find that enormously liberating, this willingness on Alan's part to move between the personal and the more rigorous, the more universal objectivity, whatever we might call it. Because that actually, I think, is perhaps more difficult than staying at the level of rigor in some enclosed way. To actually be able to take one's philosophy out into the world to the extent of being able to address one's own personal relationship with philosophy, but also with the world, is a courageous way of doing philosophy. And it's one that opens up philosophy beyond academia and hopefully also opens up philosophy within academia. I think that's very, very distinctive of Alan's approach. And you can really see it in the papers within the collection, the way Alan's own humanity and his own being a person in front of you and philosophizing at the same time, how these are intertwined with each other. But it's not just that that's a great style of doing philosophy. That's also his topic. That's what he wants to get at. According to the Kantian position, uh, we have a capacity for reason. But as Alan again and again says, the way in which we operate with that capacity is always within particular circumstances. It's always within a temporal framework, whereas reason itself, should that exist in its own terms, would not be temporal. But nevertheless, we always have to, insofar as we're operating as reasoning beings, we're always within time, within situations, with our own histories, with other people. And so that relationship between particularity and universality just seems to be absolutely central to what he's saying and how he does it. There was one thing that you that you just said that I was particularly struck by and, and I suppose particularly agreed with, which is the way in which Alan's humanity shines through in his writing and in the way that he does philosophy. And you said something which I really liked, that this is not just a question of his approach to philosophy, his way of doing philosophy, but is also his subject matter. I mean, here I'm reminded of a recurring theme in Bernard Williams's work, actually. And I know that Bernard and Alan talked a lot to each other about philosophy and had, had a lot to do with each other. But you do find this in Bernard Williams's as well, that phrase of his, which is the title of one of his papers, philosophy as a humanistic discipline. I think it does have those two elements. Part of what I think both Bernard and Alan would want to say is that uh, philosophy is best practiced as a humanistic discipline, and that's a comment about how it should be done. There's a kind of anthropocentrism that's crucial to philosophy of the very best kind, but we are also concerned with human beings, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways of being concerned with human beings, obviously, and, and philosophy has a distinctive concern with human beings. I mean, this is not anthropology, it's not biology, it's not in any ordinary sense 
history. But I think it is a discipline that in some very profound sense has human beings as its, as its focus. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why Alan wants to say that we're all philosophers, because however explicitly, however consciously, we're all concerned with what it is to be a human being. That is itself part of the human condition. I mean, that's one of the things that's distinctive about us. We're fundamentally self-conscious in a way that other animals are not. The the excitement, I, I mean, I I certainly felt when I spoke to Alan about philosophy in the sense that the, the philosophical gatekeeping that I'd met when I was trying to get into philosophy in some way just wasn't there when I was speaking to him. Um, that There was a real sense that philosophy was something that crossed all sorts of different disciplines that didn't require me to have a very, very narrow, specific sort of training, but was kind of opening up different kinds of conversations and also was about as you both said, about embodied existence and how we can think about the challenges that face us in that. And also, I think for me, because I'd come from literary studies, there was a real interest in engaging with him about style and about the, the significance of style as something which had a significance for the meaning of the text rather than something that we should try and look through or put to one side. I want to come back to something you were saying, Fiona, about, about uh, the work of Immanuel Kant. And obviously Kant is the figure who comes up most often in Alan's work and pops up very frequently in, in this volume. Why is that? Why has his work been so significant for Alan? I think that the way that Kant addresses the boundary between our insertion in a causal world that is indifferent to human motivations and human choices and being on the boundary of that with a capacity for reasoning and freedom, even though that freedom may not, I think is not for Kant or for Alan, certainly absolute. So I think that's where Alan keeps coming back to um, in many different ways with different subtleties and so on, but it's that being between being on the on the border, which I think you could say it's it's something about inhabiting limits, not being either totally within or in any way being able to be totally beyond, but having to deal with that, with that being on the border, being on the limits of a world that is not of our making and yet in which we can intervene. Again, I see things in pretty much the same way as, as Fiona. There is in Kant this very, very fundamental concern with both our finitude and our rationality. So just as with, um, I mean, this goes right back to the Greeks, just as with Aristotle, when you're reading Kant, you have this very profound sense of us as rational animals and both parts of that equation are significant. These two elements are crucial to Kant and they're, and, they're, and they're crucial to the way that Alan sees things as well. You know, small wonder that Kant should have been such an, an inspiration for him. And you, you have in Kant this very distinctive interplay between the two elements. I mean, this goes right back to what we were talking about at the beginning. We've, we've got these conflicting elements, to some extent conflicting elements that make up our being. We've got this capacity to reason, this capacity to address things in a, in a universal and general way through our rational faculty. 
But we're also animals. We're finite, contingent creatures with particular biological constitution, which limits us in various ways. And what's distinctive about the human predicament is that you've got these two elements combined and and each sort of informs the other. I mean, it's because we're able to to reason about our situation that we can be self-conscious about it and we can recognize our own limits, which Fiona was, was talking about, our limitations as human beings. We're conscious of those limits in a way that um, other animals aren't, but, but we're, also, we're also rational and, and at some level recognize our rationality as our true essence and what enables us to be the free agents that also was something that Fiona was talking about. Although, of course, that freedom has constantly to be earned against the animal forces that are at work all the time as well. And and it's because of that distinctive interplay between our rationality and our animality that we recognise ourselves as being under an obligation to do anything at all. I mean, if, if it weren't for our animality, the demands of reason would just be what we were straightforward inclined to subscribe to anyway. We would be purely rational and we would always do the right and rational thing. But we're not purely rational, we're animal as well. And that is constantly tempting us away from the course of pure rationality. So all of that's fundamental to Kant. And I think all of that's fundamental to Alan as well. I think all of these themes keep resurfacing in Alan's work. Just to pick up on on what you were saying, Adrian, I mean, obviously the title of this event and the title of the book is The Human Paradox. How Mm. does this link to what you've been talking about, about this kind of duality of the human? I must admit that when I was preparing for this event, I was at one stage a little confused as to why Alan was inclined to put it in terms of paradox, what he does put in terms of paradox. I mean, it it seemed clear to me that he was dealing with certain tensions in the human condition, which we've been talking about uh, this afternoon, the tensions between the universal and the particular, the tensions between the necessary and the contingent, the tensions between the uh, rational and the animal. I mean, all of that's prominent in Alan's work. But it wasn't obvious to me in what sense this was particularly paradoxical. I mean, why think of this as a paradox? Why not just think, well, okay, you know, that's the, that's the human condition. Here we are with conflicting aspirations and conflicting parts of our being. And sometimes those tensions are uncomfortable and, and sometimes they're quite exciting. But in what way are they paradoxical? And part of what's going on there is that I think Alan sees paradox in in the idea that because of these various conflicting elements in our being, he thinks that there are certain problems that will perennially arise. I mean, we're always going to be having to work out how to navigate these tensions, and that's always going to be problematical. And there's never going to be a final definitive solution to how we should be doing that. And yet, on the other hand, because of our rationality, there's this optimism, which in particular you find in Kant, 
that we'll always have the resources to solve these problems. The problems will always be there, but they'll always have solutions. And again, when I was thinking about that, and it was very striking reading what Alan had to say about that, again, I found myself thinking, well, this is all very well, but is that particularly paradoxical? I wonder if anyone wants to jump in on this question of paradox. I think one way would be to go back to the question of limits, because I think that for Alan, limits are not simply limitations. He also talks a lot about frontiers, that a limit or a frontier is where something happens, where something can happen. And at one stage, he says something that really stuck with me, which was that our morality comes from being between the causal and the rational. So that's Alan's take uh, at one stage on Kant. And that's really interesting because it isn't perhaps the usual Kantian thought that our morality comes from our rationality uh, and being wholly distinct from the causal world, but that our morality is exactly arising from this need to negotiate between two dimensions of our being. So I think that the paradoxicality comes from the centrality of that negotiation and that reason doesn't necessarily supply us with the solutions because we can only ever occupy the position of reason within the temporal world. So that there is no get out clause. Uh, okay, we, we have a capacity for reason, but it's not one that gives us solutions to problems so much as it gives us the capacity to negotiate problems. So that's sort of where I would see the paradoxicality being at the heart of the human condition as Alan presents it. That was where I sort of found myself ending up as well. I mean, it took me a while to sort of work my way through to it, but I think there is there a difference between Kant and Alan. I mean, this is, I think, going to be one point at which he's departing from Kant. When all said and done, there is in Kant a kind of overview of the situation, a sense of where the limits lie and, and what we can do within them and what we can't do, except if per impossibly we were able to transcend them. And it's all much more open-ended and indeterminate, I think, for Alan. I mean, that's partly taking us back to the metaphor of the marsh and getting our feet wet. I think Kant's feet are quite dry in comparison. Um, there is a paradoxicality that comes out in Alan's work that perhaps isn't there in Kant. I mean, although there are these very striking points of convergence between them. Yes, I think that Alan takes Kant's insights into the natural dialectic that we're within as rational beings. And Alan develops that in a way that Kant opened up, but didn't, may not have wanted to fully embrace himself, maybe would not have done so. But there's a, a recognition of the centrality of the paradox that I think Kant would have stepped back from. I'd like to move us to a slightly different question. In one of the later chapters, Alan says that thinking has to start with the recognition of the ethical. Why? I think, again, it's because in thinking, we are negotiating between 
the particular and the universal. And that in a broader sense, that is already to be in an ethical position. It's not necessarily to be dealing with moral questions in a restrictive sense, but it's a way of already having responsibility for how we're thinking, how we're dealing with others, but not only others, but also our responsibility to ourselves. So I, I think that, especially Danielle, seeing as you said, why does it have to start with the ethical? Then that's the way I would put it. I'd have to answer it a bit differently if you said, why do we have to start with the moral? Which is also something that Alan says. And I don't know whether you agree with this, Fiona, or whether you do, Daniel. Uh, but I mean, the ethical, like the philosophical, is is something that's just part of the human condition. I mean, just as there's a sense in which we're all philosophers, so too there's obviously a sense in which we're all confronted with ethical questions, whether we like it or not. But they're distinct. I think for Alan, it's not, it's not a philosophical project, or, or not a straightforward philosophical project to address ethical questions. I mean, it's a philosophical project to try to understand what's going on when we address ethical questions, to, to step up a level and to think about the meta-ethical, if you like. But part of what's going on when he says that we have to start with the ethical is something that you said just now, Fiona, which is that we're always already there, aren't we? We're already responsible. That's there before you philosophize. I mean, that's a crude way of putting it. And, and in particular, we don't want to take the temporal connotations of that metaphor too, too seriously. But it seems to me that for Alan, there's a sense in which the ethical precedes the philosophical. Uh, but that's also Kantian. That's also very Kantian. I mean, if you think about the way that Kant does moral philosophy, he takes himself to be making sense of something that's already there. You know, the average person doesn't need the assistance of a philosopher to determine the difference between what's right and what's wrong for Kant. And that's something that we've all already got anyway. The philosopher comes along and tells a story about how it all works and, and why the difference between right right and wrong are to be drawn in the way in which they are. But the philosopher's not answering those questions for us. And I think something like that's going to be true for Alan, even if it's true to say that in some sense we're all philosophers. I can see that Alan has just joined us and I'd like to invite him to comment on what we've been talking about. Well, I've been immensely appreciative of this and I've learned a lot and find it very stimulating. Let me just say one thing about paradox. I think I have a rather simple view maybe about paradox, namely that we are pushed on by reason to try and find answers to questions to which we know there are no definitive answers, and yet we're pushed on to look for these answers which we know aren't there, and that seems to me to be essentially paradoxical and very much definitive of where it's true, where I see the human condition. And I suppose the other thing which I would emphasize, which you certainly all touched upon, is that I do see philosophy for everyone arising out of the effort to think more systematically than they would usually do, than they would usually have the time or inclination to do in the earlier parts of their lives. But there comes a point in one's life when one says, why am I doing what I'm doing? 
And then when you start asking questions, you find that you're led on to all sorts of problems which seem to interconnect with other problems. And that seems to me characteristic of how I understand philosophical problems. That if you push them far enough, they do tend to all to interconnect with each other, which is one of the things which makes philosophy rather off-putting to many people who haven't got the time or the inclination to be as systematic as that. As to the difference between the ethical and the moral, I don't think I've worked enough on that. I would be interested to know what Fiona had in mind there. I was just thinking of your resistance to a certain, I suppose, compartmentalising again of the moral, of seeing that as uh, simply individualistic. So this is the Hegelian criticism of Kant's moral philosophy, that morality is individualistic. And in contrast to that, the preferred Hegelian model is of the ethical, which is social. And I I think that you resist that compartmentalizing of the moral by insisting that there is a dynamic relationship between the moral and the political. Yes, indeed. And I would say a dynamic relationship between what you call the individual and the social. Absolutely. Just picking up on something that you just said about how all philosophical problems are interconnected. And one of the things that's distinctive of philosophy is that you can't really engage in one part of it without sooner or later finding yourself engaging with pretty much every other part of it as well. I mean, I'm sure that's right. But also, if we think back to something that Danielle said earlier, it's sort of exacerbated by the fact that the other thing that your work reminds us of very forcibly is that philosophy itself is not isolated from other disciplines. You know, the way in which it connects with literature, which is what Danielle was emphasising, but also, you know, the way in which it connects with the sciences in various ways. So there's a question from from Dennis Noble, who says, I would like to ask Fiona and Adrian whether they have also experienced what they have described as the non-dogmatic aspect of Alan's work, always open to discussion, in his interactions with scientists. He says, I ran a graduate class with Alan for several years in which he interacted with biological and physical scientists on the status of animal and human goals and behaviour. I recognise precisely what you're describing as characteristic of Alan's approach to difficult issues. Fantastic. And in fact, at this stage, I'd love to hear more about that seminar because it it also raises this question about the relationship of the human to the non-human. And uh, it sounds as if Alan was thinking very seriously about that as well. But this is also a reminder, I think, of the way in which we can think of Alan as Renaissance man. And and also, for me, I'm sorry to say, a rather painful reminder of something that I think is currently happening in academia, which goes right against this grain, because there's incredible increasing specialism these days in academia. I mean, just, you know, the very opposite of the kind of thing that we've been talking about this evening, where not only are people encouraged to focus on one discipline at the expense of others, but they're increasingly focusing on very, very narrow issues within that discipline. And for me, it's a very unwelcome trend I'm all for people reading Alan's work as a way of trying to buck that trend. But yes, I mean, Dennis's question reminds us that he wasn't just interested in the relationship between philosophy and other humanities subjects. He was interested in the relationship between philosophy and the natural sciences as well. 
And I think there's a reissue of a, of a volume coming out in June, which is on intentions. Again, Alan working with a wide range of people from different directions. Uh, and that's absolutely typical. He, he has this other really nice notion of or warning notion of stagnation and of how uh, philosophy can so easily, both continental and analytical, can get into a sort of defensive position of making sure that everything is technically right. And I think missing the point. It's really important that all the talk about interdisciplinarity and how that's supposed to be a good thing, that that is actually acted on and that inspired by Alan, that we have the courage to be able to go beyond the totally solid ground to other interesting places to stand. I was just thinking, you know, this is yet another example of what it is to get your feet wet, isn't it? I mean, that urge to make sure that everything's technically right, as you put it, and that urge to respect these various boundaries between disciplines or between a continental way of doing philosophy and an analytic way of doing philosophy. Those urges are urges to try and keep your feet dry, I guess, aren't they? Yeah, and, and we obviously do want to get things as right as possible. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's just, how do you get the balance? And are you willing to take risks? And, and I think that that's something that Alan has always been inspiring about. A question from uh, Cristobal for Fiona. How do you think Montefiore reacts to Kant's linkage of limits, including sometimes the limits of philosophy itself, to system and systematicity? Wow. Right. Thank you, Christabel. So I think that the very short and rather too simple answer would be that system is something that we operate with as an ideal, something that we aim towards. We try to join up the dots. We try to make the connections. We stand on the limits and we appreciate that we're never going to wholly occupy the position of absolute control of what we're talking about, but we still push ourselves as much as possible to be able to make the best sense that we can. So this is an uncomfortable position to be in because we can't achieve total systematicity, but at the same time, we're haunted by it. Danielle would be in a better position to comment on this than me, but I'm, I'm reminded because Derrida hasn't come into our discussion very much, and Derrida has been a really important interlocutor and friend of, of Alan's. There's that bit where Derrida says that he's always continually playing chess with Hegel, and Hegel is the great systematic philosopher, but Derrida feels that he has to keep on playing that game with Hegel, even though he's also at the same time resisting systematicity. A question from, from Simon about the structure of the book. So it's composed of essays, but we're not told when they were written or whether they've been previously published. Why was this held back if it was? And I guess I'm best placed to answer that, which is to say that the ones that have been previously published, the details are in the footnotes. So clearly, Simon, you haven't read the footnotes properly. <laughs> um, I, I think about half have been previously published and about half were actually ones that Alan and I found going through his files that he'd been you know, given at conferences or worked through some drafts and never actually published. So the ones that were published, it's detailed in the first footnote of, of each essay. Okay, there's a question from Stephen Lukes. So Alan was always sceptical of drawing a clear distinction between facts and values, an issue still alive among social scientists. How would the speakers, or indeed Alan himself, characterise his final position on this issue? Sorry, big question, short time. My understanding very, very imperfect, is that Alan is fascinated by the need, once again, to mobilise the relations between facts and values. 
and that the distinction is important, but that that distinction cannot be absolute. That's my understanding. There's a real recurring theme here, isn't there? Because presumably trying to make a really clear distinction between them and giving some definitive account of what values are and some definitive account of what facts are, which shows that they're completely separate from each other. Presumably that would be yet another example of not getting your feet wet, wouldn't it? That would be another way of trying to present these things in what would count for Alan as too tidy, too systematic a way. He's surely going to be sensitive to the ways in which that distinction is fluid and perhaps ultimately disintegrate. A question coming back to our discussion of, of paradox. Uh, so a question from Melina. Does the paradoxicality stem from the dual form of humans, animals with consciousness? I think in, in our various ways, we've both been suggesting that it does have something to do with that dual status. Yes. I mean, I myself earlier put it more in terms of our animality and our rationality rather than our consciousness. And I suppose part of my reason for preferring that way of putting it is that that's perhaps more clearly something that looks as if it's a feature of the human condition. There's arguably a sense in which we share some kind of consciousness with other animals in a way in which we don't share our rationality with other animals. And it's taking us onto a different level. But again, one shouldn't exaggerate any of these contrasts because, again, that would be refusing to get your feet wet. And, and also not taking seriously that we are both animal and we have these capacities that are distinctive to our sort of animality. And that's the conflicted, but nonetheless, in a sense, a position of potential that we find ourselves in. I don't think we have any more time for, for questions, unfortunately. Um, I'd like to thank Fiona, thank Adrian, thank Alan for joining us briefly. Do join us again in May when we'll be back with more philosophy for you. Bye-bye.